You're listening to Plenary Session. On today's Plenary Session, we're going to talk about a few things. I'm going to highlight a marvelous paragraph from a paper on real-world evidence by Christopher Booth and colleagues that appeared in Nature Review's Clinical Oncology. I'm going to make one point about the recently announced resignation of Dr. Scott Gottlieb from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, uh, who resigned as FDA commissioner. And this is to do with what is the metric by which we ought to judge the success of the U.S. FDA. Finally, we're going to talk to Dr. Deborah Cohen. Dr. Cohen is professor of family medicine here at OHSU. She is a leading researcher in qualitative and quantitative methods to assess whether or not clinician-patient communication is meaningful, whether or not it's changing practice, and whether or not it's leading to real improvements. And she's going to talk about whether or not EHR data can realistically be used for meaningful improvement. You won't want to miss it. So stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us, patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose, and supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. First up, real-world data towards achieving the achievable in cancer care by Chris Booth, Safia Karim, and William McKillop. This is a paper that appeared as a full-length review in Nature Views Clinical Oncology by Dr. Booth and colleagues. Dr. Booth is from Kingston, Ontario, Queen's University uh, in Canada, and he is a leading thinker in oncology research. This is an article that I have to say won my award for the single best article on real-world data or real-world evidence that I've read. Um, It is a comprehensive review that details over and over instances and situations in which real-world data was incredibly useful, allowed us to learn things about the utilization or practice patterns or the translation of clinical trials to the real world and many, many other things. And I would say there is no substitute for taking the time to sit down and read this paper, especially if you care about real-world data and real-world evidence. That said, in this podcast, I want to highlight one section of the paper that I think just hits the ball right out of the park. Here it is. Randomized trials and real-world data, Booth and colleagues write. RCTs and studies of real-world data are very different forms of research that have different goals. While the outcome of RCTs define what is achievable for patients with cancer, the outcomes observed analyzing real-world data define what is currently achieved. Thus, the interface of RCTs and real-world data can help systems move towards achieving the achievable. Do people really get the best treatment that's shown in studies? I just ad-libbed that part. Um, back to Booth and colleagues. With real-world data, many issues of cancer control that cannot be assessed with an RCT can be explored. Real-world data studies should not be viewed as alternatives to RCTs. This principle needs to be carefully considered in light of the interest observed in the past few years towards using real-world data for the purposes of regulatory approval. When real-world data are used to compare the effectiveness of two anti-cancer therapies, the studies should be regarded as hypothesis generating only. If the study is poorly designed, its results could potentially be harmful to patients. 
And then this paragraph, which I think is the pinnacle of the paper. The strength of RCTs rest with the internal validity of the data, but their weakness lies in their limited generalizability because trial populations are often not representative of the general population at large. Owing in part to strict eligibility criteria, less than 5% of adult patients with cancer in the U.S. participate in a clinical trial. However, no reason exists for clinical trials not to be more representative of the general population. The pediatric oncology community has a long history of undertaking trials in which greater than 60% of children with cancer are treated on protocol. Clinical trials for adults with cancer should adopt broader entry criteria as proposed by PEDO and colleagues and as seen in several large simple trials such as ICON-4 and Stampede, which allow the inclusion of all patients considered fit enough to receive the treatment with consequent wider application. Although, note to myself and to still listeners that some parts of Stampede did not utilize appropriate post-protocol therapy. Okay, be that as it may. He's right on this point. Back to Booth and colleagues. Therefore, real-world data should not be expected to fix the generalizability problem of RCTs, but instead RCTs need to be made more applicable to patients in the real world. Finally, that RCTs and studies of real-world data are not mutually exclusive is worth highlighting. While real-world data are most often used to study practice and outcomes after, or in the absence of an RCT, increasing interest is being focused on implementing RCTs in real-world settings and using data from EHRs and administrative records to evaluate the toxicity and outcomes of the compared treatments. <sighs> Hats off to Booth and colleagues. He hit the nail on the head and something I've said before on this podcast, which is randomized controlled trials are the Boeing 747. And the current eligibility criteria and the current way we're running these trials is like flying United Airlines. We've put the seats too close together. We've made flying a miserable experience. And I am always in boarding group five. But there's no reason you throw away the airplane. You can simply spread out the seats. You can have reasonable boarding groups. Um, you can adopt some of the things that, say, Southwest Airlines has done to make it a little bit more pleasant an experience. And similarly, Booth and colleagues point out that there's no reason why RCTs have to have such crippled, limited generalizability. They can become more generalizable. And there are, in fact, trials that do just that. So, Booth and colleagues, lots of credit here for a comprehensive review that I cannot imagine how much time it took. Uh, it must have taken a long, long time because it is detailed, it is long, it is thoroughly referenced, and it is comprehensive, and it is everything you need to know about real-world data. So check it out. Next. I'm recording this just in the wake of the announced resignation by Dr. Scott Gottlieb as commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. There's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of rampant speculation out there, and I will not engage in either of them. But one thing is being said over and over on Twitter, and it's been said over and over and over by many people who are purportedly quite intelligent. And this is something that is, in fact, not a wise thing to say. What people are saying is that Scott Gottlieb or the current FDA or current regulatory systems are the best they've ever been, and they point to a piece of data to justify that. And the piece of data they point to is that we are approving more drugs per annum than we have ever approved before. And I would just say that that is absolutely not, nor, nor could it ever be, the metric by which a regulatory system is judged. Merely approving more and more drugs cannot be the bar by which to measure a regulatory system. Because 
obviously, obviously, the easiest way you could approve many, 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 many drugs is to have nearly no efficacy standards. If you do not require anti-cancer drugs to improve overall survival in randomized control trials and settle for shrinking tumors more than 30% in some fraction of patients in an uncontrolled small study that leads to drug approval, you will approve more drugs. If you do not require randomized trials to improve quality of life and instead allow time to event endpoints like progression-free survival, you'll approve more drugs. If you approve every drug, even in settings such as cardiovascular disease and heart failure based on one clinical trial where say, you know, this would be kind of crazy, but let's say you combined a novel drug with a maximum FDA-approved dose of, say, an ARB, and you tested it against a sub-maximal FDA dose of an ACE inhibitor, and you allowed that to lead to a novel drug combination to come to market, say, and you didn't require a confirmatory study, that would allow many, many products to come to market because you've effectively lowered the regulatory standard for approval, um, but there would be a lot of residual uncertainty about whether or not those drugs in the real world actually make people better off. So what I will say is, you know, there's a lot of things and a lot of opinions people may have about the tenure of Dr. Gottlieb and the kind of job he did. And I think that one thing I see over and over is the argument that compared with how other federal agencies are functioning, the US FDA is not functioning as perhaps catastrophically broken or bad as some other agencies, ergo the job of being the leader is good. Um, I would say that that's a bit of a low bar. And if that's the bar for success that you choose, you know, that's you're entitled to that. I think that that's it's quite a low bar to say an agency is doing better because they're doing better than the EPA, which is essentially, you know, not really fulfilling their mission or mandate. Uh, that's a low bar to declare success. Um, and additionally, if you try to bolster your argument that someone did a good job because they approved more chemical agents. Um, I think that that's not very good as a metric. The number of chemical agents approved is a combination of two things. One, the regulatory standard for approval. And two, the number of chemical agents being pursued. And how do you increase the number, number of chemical agents being pursued? One of the things you might do as a society is set no downward pressure on the price of drug products once they're approved so that companies that get a drug to market are essentially able to generate whatever revenue stream that they would want because they could charge any amount of money. And let's say, for instance, this would be crazy, but you would prevent large federal payers from being able to negotiate the price of the drugs and you'd prevent large payers from being able to say no, of course. Um, if you did those things, you would generate tremendous financial incentive for a drug to come to market. And if you paired that with a system in which the bar to get to market was non-trivial, um, you know, you have to do something, but not very difficult. You don't really have to show efficacy. It's okay to do some phase one studies and have some sort of hints of activity. Um, if you did that, you would have a bonanza of drugs coming to market. And what you would actually do is create a system where you're hitting the sweet spot for profit. Because, of course, if you removed all regulation entirely, then any fly-by-night company can produce any product and sell it um, based largely on word of mouth or, you know, whatever kind of marketing efforts they would want. And this would likely lead to a reduction in price because there will be just so many compounds. They could not compete on any measures of merit. They can only compete on price. Um, but instead, if you set some arbitrary thresholds to come to market entry and you tie the hands of payers and force them to pay for everything, um, maybe even you go further and you create several 
compendia guidelines, for instance, to decide that drugs should also be paid for off-label purposes, and you allowed experts to serve on those compendia guidelines with heavy financial conflicts of interest and recommending off-label use of drugs based on very low levels of evidence, which was something that John Markhart and I found in a paper um, that was published in the British Medical Journal called Level of Evidence and Frequency of Recommendations Beyond the U.S. Food and Drug Administration Approval, made by the NCCN. Um, Then you'd have a system where a lot of companies are deciding to test putative candidate compounds, um, and many, many drugs come to market. So whatever you feel about the current commissioner um, and whatever speculation there may be about why he is stepping down right now, I would say um, that it would be a mistake to judge any agent's uh, performance by comparing them to an agency that is essentially being run into the ground, uh, such as, for instance, the EPA. It would also be a mistake to judge a regulatory agency by the number of new drugs they approved. That is not the metric of good drug approval, nor should it be. Uh, It merely tells you something about broader forces going on in the healthcare drug marketplace. All right, on that positive note, we're going to turn to our interview with Dr. Deborah Cohen. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Deborah Cohen. Dr. Cohen is Professor of Medicine in the Department of Family Medicine here at OHSU. And she's also the Vice Chairperson of the Department of Family Medicine. Is that right, Dr. Cohen? Yes, of research. Of research. And Dr. Cohen has a background in communications and also a, a fair bit of interest in, I think, the interrelationship of the digital electronic record and how doctors and patients interact in the office. Um, and she has an interesting background. She did her master's at the University of Pennsylvania in communications, went on to do her PhD at Rutgers, and spent a few years out there on the East Coast at Robert Wood Johnson Medical Center, uh, and came to OHSU almost a decade ago, where you've been in the Department of Family Medicine all these years. Is that a fair summary? That's exactly right, yes. And how did you find the move out west? You were telling me before we started that one of the differences between Oregon and the East Coast is we actually have something called family medicine. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Um, one of the things that really excites me about OHSU and the family medicine department is how robust family medicine is. Mm-hmm. Um, the physicians that are trained in the Department of Family Medicine here are trained in what's called full-scope primary care. Mm-hmm. Um, they are training physicians that can practice in a rural setting or an urban setting, but can deliver babies, can do C-sections, um, can do a, a whole range of procedures. And that is really quite different from where I grew up in New Jersey and where we were raising our kids. Mm -hmm. Our kids had a pediatrician who wasn't a family physician. I see. Um, So it was quite different. And I think um, it's... It surprises many of us who've, uh, you know, I did my training in Chicago and also on the East Coast and when I moved out here, it surprises some of us to see um, a single practitioner with this broad scope because even when I did my family medicine rotations, there was a lot we didn't do. Uh, The family medicine doctors didn't perform C-sections. And many people, even though they had trained kind of broadly, chose to focus in maybe just adults and kids. And so it is impressive to see at OHSU that many practitioners really do keep up their skill set in this broad way. And it's terrific for patients, yeah. too. Um, uh, 
funny or not funny story. When, when my first daughter um, was born, I, I thought at one point she had thrush. And I will never forget the look on my pediatrician's face when he was afraid that I was going to show him my case of thrush. <laughs> that would never be an issue for a family doctor, right? Uh, they would be taking both care of the child and, and the mother. The yeah. mother mm-hmm. But that was not the situation at the time. And I wonder if part of it is the necessity of being out here in the West where we have counties uh, bigger than, you know, some eastern seaboard states uh, with, you know, fewer people um, than, uh, you know, in some even uh, liberal arts campuses. I mean, these are very sparsely populated counties out here. And and to really have health care there, you need to have doctors who are able to be resourceful, uh, especially when they're encountering something they don't see every day. I think that's true, although I think if we let our imaginations wander a little bit, we could imagine how that would also be helpful in the city of New York, mm. you know, to have a- Tell a, me about a, that. Right? I mean, if you have a, a family of four, however, mm-hmm. h- however your family is composed, and you're all seeing the same family physician, that can make things a lot easier. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely understand why in rural communities they may not have the, the same resources. They may not have easy access to a cardiologist or other kinds of specialists. But from a family um, that is looking to get sort of whole person care, having one physician that understands what's going on in the different parts of your family can be incredibly helpful. I, I don't mean to go back to the parenting part mm-hmm, of this mm-hmm. again. But that's a but great example. It's yeah. a great example. You know, I mean, when, you're, when your pediatrician is talking with you about quote unquote sleep training, mm-hmm. you know, what they need to understand is how exhausted are you? <laughs> you know, and yeah. that is, and really how is, how are you doing with all other things that can be affected by that anxiety, depression, and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And when that care is all together, that conversation can become much more holistic, essentially. I, and that's, I think that's well put. Um, and too often on the East Coast, it's the other way around. A single person has a family of four doctors to That's take right. care of each of their That's each of their exactly medical right. conditions. Yeah, and those, but those doctors, like like many families, don't actually speak to each other. So that's a, mm-hmm. it's also that's another problem. That's an excellent point. I wanted to ask you about this very interesting paper of yours that I was reading, entitled "Primary Care Practices' Ability and Challenges in Using." electronic health record data for quality improvement. So this is a paper, and you can tell me where I go wrong, but I guess in terms of background, one of the things people may not know is that there are federal value-based payment incentives to encourage practitioners to use the electronic health record for something called meaningful use or meaningful Mm -hmm. growth or, you know, to, to make the practice better, have some quality improvement. Um, where does that come from, and 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 what does that look like? I guess before we talk about you know what you found. So the the federal government over the last twenty years is trying to has been creating incentives for um, I'll just focus on primary care practices yeah. to adopt electronic health records. Electronic health records are basically software programs um, that a practice can use to not just. Um, 
to manage its business, to, to bill and code and do all the kinds of business things that practices need to do. Mm-hmm. But they have also been a replacement for what a lot of people probably have recognized as the paper manila chart mm-hmm. um, that we all had when we went to our doctor's offices, probably not all that long ago. And if you look long enough, they're still floating around. <laughs> um, and that it, this is essentially uh, supposed to be an electronic substitute mm-hmm. for that. And the federal government initially um, created incentives for um, practices to purchase and implement these tools. And then subsequent to that, they um, implemented a program called Meaningful Use, which set up a series of stages or tiers to help get practices to use their EHR Uh, more effectively in care. So to make sure that practices were using e-prescribing to make sure that they could generate a patient list and use the the patient list, for example, a list of patients that maybe have type 2 diabetes and to look at hemoglobin A1C scores or to make sure that patients in that particular (laughs) panel are up to date on their screening. And um, there have been financial incentives tied to this. Most currently, things are now getting real, essentially. So um, with some of the recent federal programs, um, it's called, the program is called QPP, the Quality Payment Program. Others may have known it by its earlier name, which was MACRA and MIPS. Um, Practices are going to start getting paid for quality. And the reason why that is important is, the following. (laughs) So the EHR companies were um, supposed to be held to certain standards, that their electronic health records could do certain things. Mm -hmm. And they were held to these standards by the Office of the National Coordinator. So if you purchased a Office of the National Coordinator certified EHR, that meant that your EHR could do certain things. And one of those things was to generate a quality report. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that those EHRs actually can generate a quality report, but they can only do it in a way that's aligned with the meaningful use requirements, which is an annual report. Mm -hmm. So from December to January, you can look at your your quality for a particular measure. And practices really didn't care about it. They were not getting incentivized in a way that how they did on that measure was what they were getting paid for. That all is changing now with the quality payment program. So practices are starting to look at these data um, and what they're finding is that they don't necessarily believe what's in these reports. They think that they they don't correlate with what they perceive as their A1C control, for instance. Or exactly. They... And and there for the first thing is is that there are oftentimes a number of stages of grief associated with looking at one's data, I and see. and sometimes denial is a is a realistic <laughs> one, mm-hmm. which is you think your numbers are better than they really are. But there are a number of reasons that these data are wrong. I see. Um, and that's where your paper enters. That's where our paper enters the scene. But who, who decides what these these um, the quality metrics are in this? Was it the federal government who made the decision? Yes. So CMS, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, has a whole series of quality metrics. They and and they release what's called a value set, and that basically <clears throat> is the instructions for how to produce that measure. And that then goes to the EHR vendors, and they have teams of programmers who mm-hmm. write code that 
as I understand it, and I am a layperson in this area, so you're getting the layperson's view, but these code writers essentially write code that, that tell the electronic health record where to pull data from to produce this measure. Now, for anyone that's used an electronic health record, oftentimes there are multiple places where you can input the exact same data. Uh-huh. That's um, true. And those are discrete fields that I'm talking about. And so if coders aren't programming and telling a program to pull from all of those fields, your data could be wrong. You could easily miss one of those fields because they only pick three out of four or yeah. five out of 25 or something. That's right, mm-hmm. that's right. Sometimes there are certain buttons that you have to hit before um, the programming will count that you've done smoking cessation counseling and oh, I see. and we saw a lot of data qualitatively that suggested that somebody just went into the practice and explained that well you have to hit this button and then the rates went and up and then the rates just went up mm-hmm, so there's course. a lot of little nuances mm-hmm. like that now that's not all the problem right but it is some of the reason why data don't look right um, i think sometimes um, people put things in text boxes Mm -hmm. and they are not necessarily thinking through that it's not a discrete field and it's not going to impact a measure. Um, And then there's much more complicated issues. So blood pressure is a good example of that. In evidence now, one of our our, our main targets is improving um, blood pressure control. Mm. And that measure is a lot trickier because as a patient, you almost never go to your doctor without them taking a blood pressure. Of course. And when they enter the pressure, they generally enter your blood pressure into a discrete field. There's probably, and it's easy to calculate, right? Why wouldn't blood pressure be right? Well, there's a number of things that then happen. So um, let's say you're a patient and you have an elevated blood pressure. And let's say it's your practice's protocol to then take a second blood pressure to see if it comes down by the end of the visit. A lot of EHRs don't have a place to put that. Mm-hmm. Or if you if your doctor recommends that you take an at-home blood pressure, where do you put that in the EHR? And that doesn't get calculated in the CMS measure. Mm-hmm. And at some this practices point. may tell them, don't write down the first number, wait till it comes down and write that in the EHR. Right, right. You know, a few years ago we had this um, procedure, renal artery denervation, and they found something very interesting, which was like in an ambulatory blood pressure monitor the patient went home with and that would randomly inflate and keep a record the difference of getting this procedure or not was something like four millimeters mercury, something very, very small. Mm-hmm. But in the clinic, it was like a, it was like a 30-point reduction in millimeters hmm. mercury. And what they found was that the provider's expectation that something had been done was leading the provider to cycle, recycle the cuff. Um, you know, they, they got the same number and they're like, that doesn't make sense. Let's wait five minutes and recycle it. And so they were picking and choosing what values they were reporting. And so they create, you know, this is a, a, just a nice example mm-hmm. of how when you take a measurement that kind of fluctuates and you insert someone in there who's using their preconceived notions or biases in terms of deciding what to write down, you can create variation just based on expectations and not based on what's actually going on. Th- that's right. That's right. So that's one of the issues. The other, the other big issue is that these... Um, the, is the is the measurement period mm-hmm. so so to do quality improvement practices need uh, certain types of information they, they need to understand uh, and answer, be able to answer the question how overall is my practice performing on and in this case let's say hypertension control and then they need to say okay so how are the individuals 
teams performing on this. And it may be that each clinician works with a particular team. So how are my clinicians performing on this? And then they're going to start to see some variation on that. And then they need to drill in down a bit more even to look at, um, well, which patients are not in alignment. And then we, what do we want to do about that? Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of information is incredibly difficult for most practices to access, particularly the small ones. I see. So the EMR can tell you, your, you know, uh, on average, your X, but right. they can't tell you who is the people you should go and call up and try to improve. They sometimes can, uh-huh. but even if those functions are available and they're not always available, they're oftentimes um, an add-on that a practice needs to pay extra for, oh, or they're available and they're very hard to use. Um, they're, they're very hard to use. And then the other piece of this is the measurement period. Most practices that do quality improvement, and perhaps in your own practice, they, they do these in sort of short cycles. A common one is a plan, do, study, act cycle, which is called a PDSA cycle. They're generally not a year long, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So you generally want to try something and see, is it impacting my measure? And then if it's working, and spread it or do more of it. And the, year, the, the, the measurement period that isn't adjustable makes that very, very difficult to do. So the tools just aren't really aren't really there yet. I think it's it's such an interesting question because I guess I would say there's like I don't know, I see several layers of things that I, you know, I hear uh, I hear a lot and that you know may raise some question marks. I guess the first thing I would say is that when you talk to providers about the EHR there's often nothing that elicits such strong response as the EHR. And I think part of that frustration is just from the fact that it has these dual roles, which are very difficult roles. One, billing, which is a, just a nightmare and something that, frankly, I don't know, a lot of doctors just don't care about. I mean, they doctors probably care about their pay, their take-home pay, mm-hmm. but they don't want to care about the intricacies of billing, and that's not why they want you know went to medical school. The other part is communicating to other doctors and communicating to yourself in the future, which is probably the biggest value of the note. And what you'd like to write are notes that when I pick up the note that I wrote three months ago, I'm instantly, oh, my mind is right back at the place where I left off. And the fact that the chart's trying to do two things has always been you know, a tough thing. Then the next thing I'd say that I think is a challenge is the metrics that they pick to track. Um, some of them may be, I don't know, um, it may be true that these are measures of, you know, of, of some type of medical care, but it's not always intuitive that changing and improving those things actually makes people better off holistically, or that you end up focusing on a few random spots. You know, for instance, if you um, if you came to my house to see how clean it was, and I always knew you're going to check three spots, I'll certainly clean up those three spots, but the rest of the house might be a total mess, right? right? And so I guess that's the other kind of frustration that doctors may have. But what you're talking about is something beyond these two, which is that how useful is the information even to keep track of those three spots is right. that right that that that's right that's real that's that's very true and there are movements afoot in family medicine to try to move policy towards more meaningful measurement of what good quality primary care is and i think most would agree it's probably not the things we looked at in evidence now, right. aspirin management, blood pressure right. control, cholesterol, and smoking cessation. And then aspirin, for instance, just backfired this year when right. you know three randomized trials show doesn't do what we thought it did. I think the difficulty is that it's very hard to, well, you're a qualitative researcher by training, so mm-hmm. you actually will understand that it's hard to quantify a lot of this. It is qualitative. It, it is It is very hard to, yeah. to, to quantify. Um, but 
I, I think, um, and there are things that I think matter very much to to patients that uh, uh, are almost never in your your electronic health record. Quality of life mm-hmm. is often not something that is assessed. What, you know, um, functional health and, and those kinds of things are often not the the highest priority. Um, I mean, along the same lines that that you've just described physicians need to look in a lot of places now to get a gestalt on a patient, particularly a complicated patient. And, you know, the tools of the EHR make it easy to automate what gets put into the note, but then finding that piece of the note that really helps you understand (laughs) what's going on with that person is is really difficult. Um, It's a mountain of auto-generated text with just this morsel of of some actual doctor's comment in there, and you've got to dig it out. Yeah. And it is kind of, it's going to be frustrating. Yeah, it's not really clear to me that it aligns totally with what people value and and what its intent was. Yeah. Yeah. Now tell us about this this paper. So this paper you actually studied this in you studied this formally, which mm-hmm. was the ability for the EHR to give us what we need to keep an eye on these metrics and actually make some meaningful improvements on these metrics. So, so I should tell you, we never intended to to study this topic uh-huh. or write this paper. So um, I'm going to make a shameless plug for this Evidence Now initiative. But Evidence Now is an initiative funded by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. And the point of the initiative was to um, rapidly disseminate and implement cardiovascular preventive care in small to medium primary care practices. And ARC funded seven cooperatives across the country, and each cooperative recruited about 200 small to medium-sized primary care practices. And 40% of our sample are clinician-owned. And they're all more or less, the majority of them met criteria, 10 or fewer clinicians. And our intent was never to study how the EHR didn't work out for this. But what ARC did, and I think very wisely, was they tried to align what we would study as research outcomes with the metrics that practices would use for quality. And that's why they chose the ABCs, the CMS measures. And and those were things that practices might care about, particularly with pay for performance and, and, and those kinds of programs. And they were measures that we could use for research. And the first, gosh, first three years of our program has been focused on trying to get these data out of the EHR. Mm. And, and, and so this paper was a lot of um, just the cooperatives and the, the folks that they had on the ground trying to help practices extract these data for quality improvement as well as for research, their experiences. I see. And that's how you got the the, the, the idea to even pursue this. Yes. Uh, yes. Because it, they were frustrated. Totally frustrated. Uh-huh. Right? They had only they have they had only three years to do this work. And and some of them spent the majority of that time trying to get these data. Now there are different local ecosystems for data that had very different experiences. Um, New York City is is an example of one. So New York City made an investment um, 
probably a decade ago in a single electronic health record system that it more or less um, gave to its small practices inexpensively Uh, if they agreed to be part of this warehouse surveillance system. So all of their practices were on eClinical Works, and they'd been using this system and had the the kinks out of it. Uh But that's a very unique Mm data ecosystem. And what, what what are the kinds of data points you're trying to get out of this? Cardiovascular data points, cardiology data points? So aspirin use. Okay. They, we, really, this was practice level data. We wanted numerators and denominators. That's it, yeah. That is it. What percent of your patients uh, over a certain age who have no problem with it are taking aspirin? That's right, that's mm-hmm. right. And, it, and that's... Even that was that difficult. To it get. was extremely difficult. I see. Yes, and some practices needed to do chart audits. They couldn't actually get those data out of their EHR. By that you mean a human being has to hand read these notes. Yes, and that is, I guess, the reason why to highlight just how problematic that is. Is if um, there is no value to the EHR at that point. If a human being has to hand read all the notes, they could have hand read the 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 the, the paper written notes, and yeah. it doesn't give a value to the computer when you have to invest so much human energy on the back end to get the info that you yeah. want. Yeah, yeah. I, this may be totally off track, but one of the questions I think to ask ourselves, and yeah. I'm not sure I know the answer to this, is why has technology in other industries followed a faster trajectory of meeting the needs of its users? For example, personal story. My father is a certified public accountant. Mm -hmm. He was doing tax returns with paper and pencil when I was a kid, but the software started coming into into play yeah. and he didn't like it at first right, okay. and he didn't like it at first because he could do a better tax return faster if he by did hand. it by hand of course I can tell you that is not his experience today yeah the software has improved so much it's it's inputted the local laws and it's got modules for different states that he ne- he would never do a paper and pencil tax return anymore and the question is why has that not been the case for electronic health records okay I have a theory I have some too okay but you go Okay, good. No, first. no, no. Okay. <laughs> well, you thought about it more than me. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll give you one more off-medicine example, yeah. which I think uh, informed my theory. But I think it's actually a very interesting qu- philosophical question. Okay, so the first thing I note is the difference between my OHSU email and my Gmail. Hmm. Okay, if I want any piece of information that I know somebody emailed my OHSU email, I just give up. I, in fact, I sometimes want to give up on life when I try to find that info. Because as you know, our OHSU email archives at like some really ridiculously short period of time. And there's two different archive servers and the search function is awful and I can never even find it. Even when I type in like the proper email address of the person who sent it to me, I can never find the email. Okay, meanwhile, Gmail, Gmail, um, it's unbelievable. I can just put like three words in that I vaguely remember from an email and it can pull it up from you know 2009, the exact email that I'm thinking about uh, from a decade ago. Um, and it's gotten to the point that um, you know, once upon a time I used to spend all this time uh, organizing my folders and files and keeping so I would be able to find things later. Now I don't have to do that because the search function is so good. Okay, but now to my theory about the medicine. I think the reason it's so bad is that the EHR has those dual roles. It's not just a communication tool, which is what I want it to be. It has this billing purpose to it. And the billing purpose, I frankly could care less about, and I'm not even sure our current system of billing is optimized for patient health. It's certainly optimized for certain subspecialities of doctor, but I don't think it has anything to do with what's best for patients. And and the fact that it's trying to do both and people are just adding lots of low value, perhaps even not perfectly honest elements to their note just to be able to achieve scores so they can bill very high 
is what has diluted the content of the note. I would much rather just have a note where the only thing the doctor wrote was, you know, what they actually thought about in the visit. And all of those other kind of tracking metrics were tracked in sort of, um, you know, fields where you don't have to use human energy to go later. They're they're kept in a database. Okay, now what's your I think what's it's even view? worse than okay. what you've described. Okay. I actually think the electronic health record was developed with those billing folks in mind. Yes. That it actually wasn't developed with the clinician as user. I see. Right. And, and it has been spread to include those folks because they are the generators of bills. <clears throat> But generally, their their needs for information and ease of use have been largely secondary. Um, I, I also think there's got to be some elements of lack of competition mm-hmm. and infusion of, of, of money in, into this marketplace that hasn't forced vendors yeah. Yeah, to because, innovate. Because they don't have to compete by, by making your life easy. You're right. being cajoled into using it. No, I think there's a lot of truth to that. You're and it's so hard, yeah. right? Once you've implemented one in EHR, I mean, ask a physician, how much do they want to go back and change systems to another one? I mean, wow. it's it's like thinking about getting a tooth pulled after you've just had one pulled. <laughs> the inertia so, of uh, yeah. Yeah, switching. Yeah, and it is. used to be that, that, and this has changed, but it used to be that shifting data from one system to another was really difficult. That has changed for sure, but it's it's a it's a big implementation and, and folks don't necessarily want to go through it twice. And so just to summarize your health affairs paper, what it, would it be fair to say what you find is, you know, I'll read you the last line of your abstract, the current state of EHR measurement functionality may be insufficient to support federal initiatives that tie payment to clinical quality measures. You basically found that uh, it is not intuitive or easy to get the information that people actually would need to have meaningful use. That's right. And and money is now on the line for a lot of primary care practices, including small ones, which I know folks think that they're a dying breed, but they are a breed of practices that are serving patients in some rural communities where there are no other doctors. Right. And these incentives have the potential to make it harder for them to stay into business, mm. in part because, I mean, there are lots of reasons for that, but certainly their electronic health record tool is not necessarily helping them with this. Are there any solutions that jumped out at you as you were doing this work? What are the sorts of things that you think about? It's a, it's a good question. There are some innovators in this space, and, and they all struggle with, with some of the, the same issues. So, um, for example, there's a small company called Prime MD, which has, for a fee, um, creates a connection for practices to sort of a data warehouse-type functionality where they can... Um, share their data and then get back some of the reporting capacity that they need for quality improvement, but for also um, these, these quality payment programs. Mm-hmm. And, even, and, and even those organizations, um, and I probably may not be an example of them, they have to put out products before they're completely ready. I see. Programming the software to develop reporting tools that really lets you have data in the moment and, mm-hmm. and lets you do the kind of searching that you and I have grown accustomed to on, on Google. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of programming expertise and, and, and capacity, but they are able to develop sort of canned reports that align with quality payment and, and they can do the trick. Um, in fact, one of the, one of the um, EMR companies that we came in to contact with, EMD, has stopped providing their practices with reporting functionality and has recommended that they work with this company. There are local um, 
organizations that are also filling this niche. Mm. Um, so states recognize the importance of data infrastructure. Um, North Carolina is an example of one in Evidence Now. Washington is thinking about this a bit with its um, Medicaid transformation program. Um, but they are investing in um, infrastructure to build health information exchanges. Mm -hmm. And essentially, um, that is uh, a data warehouse of sorts. And a health information exchange is slightly different. There, the partners are not just primary care practices. There are other health or care organizations. But they are building trust uh, between practices who share their data and then are able to um, get access to it through the tools that they share with them and also do some performance benchmarking. So they have the capacity to also see how they're doing in comparison to their peers. So starting to build those partnerships is, um, is, is an innovative solution. It is not easy. Mm. One of the evidence now regions was Oklahoma. And Oklahoma went into this um, leveraging some work they had done with an early Beacon grant to, to expand its health information exchange. And mm -hmm. they spent the better part of their proposal time just trying to connect practices up to this. And their HIE is run by a, a really talented gentleman who worked for the ONC for a long time, wow. and he was frustrated by this. <laughs> um, so there is some innovation. Mm -hmm. It just requires investment. I see. Burnout among physicians, advanced practice clinicians and staff, and smaller primary care practices. You've also studied sort of the contributors to burnout. Mm -hmm. um, what, what do you find when you look at burnout? So we're still trying to make sense of this. Um, and, and keep in mind, the study that you're talking about was a very large sample of, of practices mm -hmm. and practice members, but it was based on one burnout item. Um, in, in this kind of large initiative, when you are figuring out what survey items you're going to ask, it's a little bit of a black market trade. <laughs> and we could not ask a lot of questions about burnout. And there are longer series of, of questions that you can ask. So we asked one question. Hmm. But, but what we found is that, um, and I should mention that Sam Edwards led this paper. And he is at OHSU and he's, he's been at on this the show VA. Before, yeah. Has he? Yeah. Um, he's wonderful and he would be a great person to, to talk to about this. He's continuing to look at this in our, mm. our sample of practices. Um, but but there, there is quite a bit of burnout of, among, among um, this group of professionals. And um, it seems to be that w one of the words that, that we use when we think about this is the relationship between burnout and agency. Hmm. That it seems that in some of our smaller clinician-owned practices, where the clinicians still feel that they have some good control over their practice and how it delivers care, that seems to be somewhat protective mm -hmm. of, of burnout. Um, so while there has been a lot of um, buying out of these clinician-owned practices by hospitals and health systems, some of those hospital and health system-owned practices have workforces that are experiencing a bit more burnout than, than some of the other types of practices. And I guess it is interesting that you really had a chance to ask them one question. If you ask them too many questions, that you burn them out just from the from that's the survey. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But but I I feel like burnout is I think increasingly discussed, but also extremely prevalent, mm -hmm. and it does sort of resonate with me that 
you know, the loss of the ability to do what you believe is best would be something that really is irksome. And, you know, there's a number of sort of perverse incentives that doctors are confronted with. Um, and I guess it's not surprising that those, I think, would contribute. Yeah, and I don't think the EHR is totally separate of that. Right. I it's, mean, it, I think that physicians sometimes feel like they're a slave to documenting in their record, and yeah. they take this work home with them at night. Yes, and that has also been, I think, you know, I just had clinic uh, this morning, and I know I have a few more hours of documentation later, and that is a, uh, you know, I think a very burdensome part. Mm-hmm. It's not the part you want to be doing, which is talking to people and helping have good conversations and helping right. make good decisions. Um, and uh, but you know, spending all this time writing this note is not really you know what anyone seeks to do. Right, right. And it's no, the work you take true. home and do sort of like in the. In the in the twilight hours when you should be sleeping, right? Or or having dinner, or you know, yeah, reading a book. I mean, it's that it's that balance that I yeah. think is really hard for yeah. folks to find. And people lose that balance because basically they work all day, go home, and do all the things they have to do real quick so mm-hmm. that they can get back on the EHR and kind of do what they need to before the next right. before they go to bed and go right. to the next day. And it, and it may be, and this is now totally conjecture, but imagine the physician who's who's in a visit with a patient who is really making eye contact with. With that person, right? That isn't looking at their computer screen, but is listening to. They're just giving themselves the more computer patient. work later. Yeah, yeah in they some are, ways yeah. they really yeah. are. <laughs> yeah. So if I, if you had to sort of describe what is the sort of uh, the the umbrella of your your interest, is it? How would you define this? Yeah. So um, it it's it's so uh, good question couple different ways. So I have very much always been interested in the organization of primary care practice. And um, specifically, I've been interested in the intersection between the interpersonal relationship, the doctor-patient relationship, which is what brought me into this, and um, the the primary care practice is a small organization, you know, particularly um, or not so small as an organization, and and those two things intersect, and they intersect around quality, and they intersect around tools like the electronic health record, where you can see the pieces of organizational culture, kind of um, intermingle with and have an effect on the doctor and the patient, and and the doctor and the patient relationship. Um, so my work has sort of vacillated between primary care organizational type work and probably some oldies but goodies mm. that really look at the communication between the doctor and patient, how patients pressure doctors for antibiotics, mm. um, how weight gets discussed in primary care visits. And, and now we're looking at um, uh, a study that looks at how the introduction of um, an HIT tool for looking at blood pressure over time uh, 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 shapes how or influences how doctors and patients talk about blood pressure control together. So it's really those, I think it's the intersection between the interpersonal and the organizational uh, levels in in the primary care setting. That interests you. Yeah. And what other ongoing projects are you looking at these days? So Evidence Now has another year. So Mm -hmm. that is a pretty intense final year of of analysis. in addition to that, which is big, um, we are involved in um, a study that is looking at um, a blood pressure tool that our colleagues at the University of Missouri created that that lets physicians look at um, 
at home blood pressures over time. And, and what is this? So the patient has it and it connects to some device and it uploads the data? It's not quite that fancy, but it gets inputted into it. What's uh -huh. really nice is that they've created a really nice visual where you can see where the blood pressures are in and out of zone and you can see what medications have been initiated. So I it see. really helps with both the escalation and de-escalation of, of medication for patients that already have a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, we're collaborating with some folks at the University of Washington to look at the role of telepsychology and telepsychiatry in um, delivering therapeutic care to um, patients with bipolar disorder and PTSD. Mm. Um, I'm working with John McConnell at the Center for Health Systems oh, effectiveness, CH, effectiveness for CHSE. Um, systems Effectiveness, I think. Yes, yeah. Center for Health Systems Effectiveness. effectiveness. We're doing the Medicaid transformation. Mm. project evaluation in, in Washington. I see. Which is pretty interesting. So my portfolio of work is a combination of um, health services research that tends to focus on primary care and as a qualitative methodologist, I, I sometimes do things that are around qualitative and mixed methods research. I see. And, and I guess, would you say that Oregon has afforded you unique opportunities because of things like, you know, John McConnell was our yeah. last guest, and I cleverly avoided the entire time spelling out what CHSE stood for. <laughs> <laughs> I should have known. I, I dodged it the whole time yeah. uh, because I can never remember what all these abbreviations stand for. But um, he talked a little bit about some of the work he had been doing on, on keeping track of the CCOs. Um, mm -hmm. I guess it's my impression that this is, a, this is a good state for this kind of work. I see you nodding. I agree. Yeah. I completely agree. I mean, I think about states like New Jersey where you feel like you're 10 degrees away from anybody in any kind of uh, decision-making role. Here you're one or two degrees away. You know, the folks that, that run the government live in, you know, they, they are part of the community. Yeah. And we work with them here. I run with them, at, you know, at mm -hmm. the gym. Um, Folks are really very much hands-on in, in trying to make improvements in this state. And it's a, an, an OHSU is a small enough institution that it's really easy to, to build connections with really outstanding researchers like John McConnell. Yeah, um, even among the faculty. And then so many of us participate in some things down in Salem to sort mm -hmm. of try to actually work on some of these policy issues at the state level. I think it's a, it's a good state for that. And I think it also is a state and probably part of the broader West that really does value, you know, true primary care. I know some of our graduates in mm -hmm. internal medicine have gone up to Alaska mm -hmm. where they're even doing colonoscopies, you know, and, and, and these kinds of things. And because scope of practice, it necessitates being very broad mm -hmm. in these kind of rural places. Um, but I think it's, it's very interesting, you know, what you're discovering, which is that um, it's, it's tough to know um, I think it's clear that this is important, that primary care would be important. I think it is very difficult to know if these broad, sweeping policy um, brushstrokes, which have tremendous weight and can change, you know, hundreds and hundreds of practices across this country, put people out of business, mm -hmm. make people retire or sell to other groups, change the very structure of healthcare. It is so difficult to assess um, their impact. I guess at a broad level on sort of what's going on to the way in which care is provided and at the at the micro level of what's going on between doctors and patients as a result of that and um, you know what you kind of have have studied is to say that um, it's a lot easier to to think you're doing something uh, than to actually do it which is actually make this meaningful 
Yeah, I, yeah, that's that's a nice way of, of putting it. I um I like partnering with with folks like John and and with folks like um, Miguel Marino, who's a statistician in our department, because they're able to take a look at what's happening. Um, through quantitative data. Mm -hmm. John has some really amazing techniques for understanding where change is happening and where it's not, as does Miguel. Um, But if we can, when we blend that with some of the qualitative work that we do, we can really start to dig in and understand what's driving some of those variations. Um, And that's where I think things get super exciting. These big state initiatives are not going to they're, they're going to roll out slowly, you know, and, and when you can start to see that something's really caught on that's going to blossom, that's kind of exciting. Mm, absolutely. Well, you know, unfortunately, we talked too much before I started recording because our, our time is, is really dwindling. Um, you know, we'd love to have you back to talk about more of this work, especially as uh, some more of your papers come out in the near future. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming here and, and talking a little bit about this. I think it's such an interesting topic. My personal bias is always that I would love to see some of these policy recommendations be implemented in a staggered way or with randomization so that we can kind of actually run it as an experiment. And I know that, you know, as a doctor, um, we're used to randomization because we use it for so many of the treatments Mm -hmm. we we do. But policymakers are, it's sort of antithetical to what they believe in. But the reality is when they don't do it in a way that allows people to study it um, rigorously, nobody has any idea if what you're getting is what you want. We are just talking about something like that with a program that's going to get spread in Oregon, and I'll let you know (laughs) how it goes, because that's the exact conversation we're going to have. But the the truth is you can't roll something out everywhere at exactly the same time. And if you stagger it a little bit, you can actually learn uh, across the, the stages. Now, you could argue then, are you comparing apples to apples? It's probably close enough, but what you gain from having a little bit of an experimental design is is enormous. Yeah, like a stepped wedge design or Ex- something like yes, that. Right, yeah. Yes. So, I mean, yeah, it, it doesn't have to be the perfect, but something is better than nothing, um, uh, you know, in terms of some experimental design and some, at the outset, plan to assess if what it's doing is what you expect it to do. That's right. Because the challenge here is that these incentives are powerful and people move to incentives in ways that align their own interest in the incentive, even if that is sort of counterproductive right. to the entire, you know, entire goal of the yeah. effort. I think there's even a good-natured danger, yeah. which is um, even under the best circumstances where someone is trying to do the right thing at the right time, it is very possible that you focus intensely on a very small segment of the population and put a lot of resources into that segment and and really miss reaching the larger mm-hmm. uh, larger cohort or population that you should be reaching. Mm. Um, and, and measurement and assessment can help avoid that, right. essentially. Mm. Well, Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast and talking about these issues. And, uh, and we hope to have you back at a future date. Thank you for having me. I would love to come back. Oh, thank you. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? 
Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. <laughs>